When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, my name is Rainer Hirsch. I am a conductor and comedian, and welcome to my proms in the pub. Now, that's not the proms as in the end-of-year dance in which high school seniors dress up in formal attire and fret about who to go with, but a summer music festival. Some would say the world's greatest summer music festival. Eight weeks of music-making centred on the Royal Albert Hall in London and featuring some of the world's greatest orchestras and soloists. Since 1927... The Proms has been run by the BBC, that's the British Broadcasting Corporation, which I am at pains to point out I am nothing to do with, although both I and my producer, Julian Mayers, have worked extensively for the Beeb in the past. Every single concert in the season can be heard live on the BBC and for 30 days on demand thereafter through their Sounds app. And it goes without saying, we encourage you to do just that. Alternatively, make your actual way to the actual Albert Hall and attend in person, which you can do for as little as £6 as a promenade, i.e. standing. £6. What's £6? You could lose six quid and not notice. But the BBC is the thing. Everything to do with the proms has always come through the Beeb, with its packed schedule and mission statements. In this podcast, we're taking time unofficially to chat about things proms without going through the prism of auntie that's the bbc as it's known affectionately in the uk if you like it's the unvarnished enthusiasts view with we hope some good laughs thrown in twice a week for the duration of the festival we'll be talking to everyone from performers past and present agents critics members of the audience the lot We're only going to be making episodes for the period of the proms. That's this year from the 15th of July to the 10th of September, which is summer in the UK and therefore rains slightly more. Accordingly, we promise that each episode will end up in that other great British institution, the pub, for some final reflections and, on occasion, a bit of a musical treat. To make sure you don't miss a thing, please, 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 please subscribe and send any feedback to rainer at promsinthepub.co.uk. You can also check out our website, www.promsinthepub.co.uk. And so, to episode the first, I'm delighted to welcome as our very first guest a soloist who's been described as the very queen of the proms, virtuoso violinist Tasmin Little. Tasman has a wealth of stories about what it's actually like to appear at the Albert Hall and casts a weather eye over some of the performers in this year's festival. I met her at a house in sunny West London and this is what happened.
Thank, thank you so much for doing this. I'm sitting feeling like I'm 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 being interviewed, but actually, forgive me for looking so casual. <laughs> but it's so nice to be here thank and uh, to have your time. And I know that you've appeared twenty times at the prom. Actually, twenty-one. Have you? Yeah. Twenty-one. I was. It was my twenty-first birthday, as it were. Oh, great! Well, that's yeah. that. And mm. they are. It started in 1990, didn't it? Your first ever proms. My first. Prom was the Janacek in 1990 with yeah. Sir Charles McCurris. And actually, it was quite funny because uh, it really wasn't known and I barely knew it. It had sort of been discovered in a drawer somewhere or something like that. And of mm. course, he, he what happened was he started to write this violin concerto and it wasn't going very well. But he took, he, so it's only 15 minutes long, and then he took the material and wrote from the House of the Dead. Right. Um, but this sort of fragment of this violin concerto, suddenly everybody decided it was a really important thing that it should be played and all of this lot. So I was asked to play it by John Drummond when he was um, the controller of the proms. And I went to um, Cardiff to rehearse it with the Welsh National Opera Orchestra and Charlie McCarras. And um, I was rehearsing with my back to the orchestra. And I, of course, I'd never heard it before. Yeah. And I started to play because it begins with the violin solo. And then I thought the roof was falling in because this extraordinary noise was happening. And then, of course, I realised it was the chains, the chains that Janacek loves, these, these sort of clanking chains. So um, I turned around and there's, there's this dutiful percussionist jangling these um, extremely noisy chains. Not, so his, really not, not his terms of, <laughs> terms of employment. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, do you know, I've often thought, because, uh, you know, when I play piano things, that, uh, uh, that it's quite good playing that no, things that nobody knows. When I did my degree finals, I played, uh, you know, Schoenberg Suite, Opus 26, Opus 25. Nobody cared. You, you can make whatever mistakes you want. Did Charles McCarris know it? Because he was a bit of a Yanagic specialist, wasn't he? Exactly. Well, he didn't know it in a way any better than I did in the sense that neither of us had performed it before. But, of course, he had the benefit of the full score, which right. I didn't. Right. So he was able to see that these clanking chains oh, right, right. were supposed to happen, whereas I had no idea. Cute clanking um, chains. Cute clanking chains. That's, yeah. that's the one. And you're absolutely right about the fact that it was really good to make my debut playing something that nobody knew because it took the pressure off. I mean, yeah. you know, making your debut in the Royal Albert Hall for the proms, um, you know, with live broadcast and everything yeah. is a huge thing. And particularly the nature of the hall is so different from many concert halls. And you're just aware that you're enveloped by the audience, which is a great thing. And it's actually a, a, one of the marvellous things about the proms. But when you sort of look at that audience in its entirety for the very first time, having seen a cavernous empty space beforehand, yeah. that is quite something. So it's guaranteed to induce a few butterflies. And, um, you know, the fact that I had this, I knew that I knew the piece better than pretty much anybody other than Charlie McGarris. Uh So that was that was reassuring. I'm always grateful that I was asked to do that and not Mozart, because Mozart's terrifying. Yeah. And Mozart's even more terrifying in a very large acoustic, which is what the Albert Hall is. Yeah, so I was going to ask, actually, what you walk out into that big space, you've got your violin, what are the particular issues? I've never played the violin in, I can't, <laughs> but I can't remember, I can't even, what are the particular, with that huge, vast expanse of plush furniture? Yeah, the, the main issue is one of clarity. Are you playing for the audience in the hall or are you playing for the microphones of the live broadcast to a great deal more people? Uh, because um, when you play in, in an acoustic that's very generous, 
you can lose bits of words. So it's a bit like, so you don't get part of the sentence, is yeah. what I'm saying. And so it, it, there are steps that you can take to uh, help that and alleviate it. But in doing so, the playing would probably come out as a little bit stilted over a microphone and through airwaves where there's the benefit of the engineer sorting the, sort, the sound out. Yeah. So there, there has to be something of a compromise that you've got to allow perhaps a little more space and uh, have a bit more clarity, but not so much that the audience listening at home wondering why are wondering why you're playing in a rather odd way. Yeah. Um, interesting that, isn't it? The, the, you know, there are 5,000-something people in there, which seems it's a vast crowd. Yeah. But out there in the big wide world, that is just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. So that's a bit spooky. Um, do you ever kind of have that feeling when you're doing something or when you've been playing those for those live broadcasts? Uh, because you could get overwhelmed by that audience. Oh, well, particularly bit. the last night of the proms, which I think they say something like 100 million worldwide mm. audience. Mm. I, I can't even, I don't even know how many zeros that is. Yeah. But that is certainly an amount that feels fairly fairly extraordinary and certainly daunting if you start to think about it. It's an interesting thing how one plays for a broadcast and psychologically there is a difference in your mind. I always liked to know when you know when I was doing something for the BBC is this live or is this a deferred relay and um, in the later years many of them were deferred relays except of course the proms is always live and so you you've got to psych yourself up to it in a very very specific way and um hmm, backstage at the albert hall it's like you're in the bowels of the earth mm. you, you just go down and down and down more staircases and it is um it, the the dressing rooms used to be very cramped so early on you almost had to be careful where you put your bow because you might you know hit the wall or the ceiling or something like that and they were either incredibly hot or far too cold neither of which is ideal if you're too hot as um, a violinist you slide around the fingerboard and the chin rest becomes a little sweaty. bit sweaty <laughs> and um, and it's just difficult bearing in mind the fact that you've got a priceless instrument that your neck and your chin are keeping safe that can result in you tensing up worrying about dropping the violin because of the fact that there's not enough friction there to keep the violin where it needs to be yeah. but if you're too cold you can get sort of clammy hands and fingers that just don't want to move. And actually, the, the, I've got a funny story for you with the last night of the proms, which I did twice. In 1995, I did it in the hall, but in 1998, I did it in the park oh. for 40,000 people, which is the largest audience I've ever looked at, and uh. it was quite something. But um, the night before the live event so the friday night we had a rehearsal which was just as well you know rehearsals are always a really good idea Raina. <laughs> so what happened was that the bbc very kindly because by this time it was september so nighttime temperatures were around about eight degrees which is you know cold enough when you've got to play with pre precision but the bbc very very kindly laid on these beautiful heated caravan dressing rooms right. so you were kept nicely warm until that moment when you had to you know jump on stage in in a long frock with your with the violin and everything um but what happened in the rehearsal was that i and my violin had been wonderfully warm got on stage and my fingers 
um, were freezing, but my violin suddenly reacted as often um, wood reacts when it goes from warmth to cold very quickly, everything shrinks. My pegs shrank and my um, strings unraveled. And um, basically there was no string to play on. Yeah. Which, bearing in mind it was a solo violin piece, was definitely a problem. Yeah. So I was doing a version of Paganini's famous 24th Caprice. You know, Is this this Paganiniana? Yes, yeah. It was Paganiniana by Milstein. Well, mm. Oh, five, gosh, and at points. the end of that round, you have scored 10 out of 10 and I, no I, passes, Rainer. I, 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 did, I did win a celebrity counterpoint, as I recall. Well and, done, yeah. well done. So Pegs, my... you're on stage. I'm on stage. You're playing this a solo violin, a bit, and your Pegs... violin hasn't got any strings. And on I it. haven't got any strings to play on. Mm. So I retuned my violin, and the same thing happened again, oh. which was making me very nervous yeah. because I was going to be the only person on stage at that moment in time, and a hundred million people were going to be listening to my Pegs not so in tune. This is this is this is a rehearsal. You're not actually. This is the it. night before. Right. Uh. And I, I was thinking, what is going wrong? And then it clicked. My violin doesn't like the sudden drop in temperature. Mm. So the next night, um, I left my violin case outside, acclimatising mm. to the cold. Got knit. While I... <laughs> No, it was under, luckily, lots of nice security people <laughs> keeping all the high-tech equipment there very safe, as well as, as, well as anybody else's instruments. Um, so the violin was banished outside to the cold, and I was kept nice and warm inside with my hair and curlers in the warmth of my dressing room. And then, um, you know, and it, it worked perfectly. So to anybody who's actually listening to this, who, who, might, who might be playing the violin and might be doing an outdoorsy gig, for goodness sake, don't leave your instrument inside a nice warm dressing room only to then have a problem with it later. That, by the way, also you casually, you know, gloss over the did 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 it, but that is much more than that. It's a virtuoso showcase. Well, to that be piece. honest, that piece is really difficult. And it, although, um, well, we did a cut down version because the BBC wanted three minutes. So I did the main variations. Right. But by 30 seconds in, I actually couldn't feel my fingers because they were so cold. And it is the oddest experience um, to play with numb fingers. Oh. And I luckily, you know, with all those years and years and years of practice, you've got muscle memory as to the distance that you've got to jump in order to leap to some of these difficult um, places on the fingerboard, but it was one of the hardest things I ever did to to play and not feel my fingers. It is it is nerve wracking being a performer. Can, you walk out, especially as a violinist. Forgive me this, and that means probe this. You walk out holding a violin, and there is an orchestra of whom about thirty five also play the violin. <laughs> yes. What I mean. And, and and of those, about 33 of them think they could probably, you know, they did this at college and they can play it better than you. Uh, what is that kind of psychology like, that that thing, dealing with uh, people playing your instruments, which as a pianist you don't get. People do play, the, but you're not, you're not actually yes, on stage with on other stage pianists. With them. Yeah, that's, that's right. No, it's, it's a very, it's an interesting one. And um, particularly as there are more violins in an orchestra than any other instrument because you're going to have the first and second violins. So, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot of them looking at you, sometimes having to look at your back, 
but that's just as bad in a way because um, they're seeing your elbow technique from a very interesting angle and <laughs> you know with the with the left hand well no with the right hand as well with the bow arm both you know elbows are actually an important part of the equation I know it sounds a little odd to say that but it's all about positioning um, and yes I do you know what actually I think I've been very fortunate in that many you know when I was very young people were sort of um, intrigued by whether I was going to be any good and then it gets worse once you start to make a name for yourself because then there are layers of expectation there that you have to hopefully fulfill because you want to for yourself but you want to for your colleagues as well so that's the moment when it gets worse but that's also the moment where I think perhaps most players wouldn't think that they could do it better than you mm. um, nevertheless they still want to know that you can still do it uh, I think there was only one orchestra um, which was the New York Philharmonic Orchestra where I was actually perhaps the Berlin Phil but um, the, the New York Phil I was playing the Tchaikovsky Concerto with them and I was very aware that every single player on stage would be able to do a pretty passable job um, and some of them did not only look at me with narrowed eyes, ah. but practice really loudly outside my dressing room. Really? The Tchaikovsky. Really? Just to, you know, show me that I was on stage with people that knew how to do it. I've rarely encountered that um, with another orchestra they, where, where lots of players congregate outside and play the piece they, that you're they about They are to famously play. a bunch of bastards, aren't they? Oh, I didn't say that. They are. But no, and actually, in fact, lots of them did come up to me afterwards and were very nice. But we, just to begin with, uh, I think there was a little bit of a, shall we see if we can psych her out kind of thing. How interesting. Um, well, I have to say, one time at the Festival Hall, um, I, with another violinist whose name I won't mention, <laughs> she, but she, she, you know, she was my comedy bitch one time. Um, we, we missed you missed being my comedy bitch one time I because know, you knackered your finger. But that, that we that will live forever in our memory as a glorious mm. opportunity that we yeah. didn't actually realise. But um, the the thing I did well that was with the Philharmonia Orchestra, and I said, uh, you know, we actually in this opportunity it's a strange concert, so we actually asked the violins, would you instead like to play a violin concerto? And they all said to a man and woman. Uh, we'd like to play the Mendelssohn. So, okay, we're going to give the viola, the the, the violins of the Philharmonic a chance, to, their big moment, to actually do, to compete with the soloists. Unfortunately, if they all play the solo line, there's nobody to play the tutti. So, Nicola, would you mind? You put an old grubby cardigan on her and she went, da 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 And then they all start going, da 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 Let me just tell you now, Tasmin, that 30-something people playing that high is effing intolerable yes it's like i couldn't believe how how awful yeah. it was. Anyway, and actually we, you know what everybody thinks that that piece is so easy and beautiful and lyrical well the, the last one yes the first two well no the middle one yes but easy no and that opening is one of the hardest in fact do you know that isaac stern said that it was the mendelssohn that he remained most scared of to his last concert interesting because mm. you think, you know, there is actually in this video, um, you, you've probably seen it, they, they did a couple of videos. One was the great conductors and they, you know, dug up video and footage or whatever the great yeah. conductors. And then they followed that up with uh, the great violinists. And there was about, I don't know, 12 or 15 or something great violinists, Nathan Milstein and Heifetz and all the other people. 
And uh, they started that DVD by cutting together people playing the Mendelssohn. So, you know, <laughs> it was all from different shots. And so that is surely the violin concerto that pretty much every, everybody goes through in order to get to the other violin concertos. So the fact he thought it was, you know, they had that effect on him. Oh, it, it is. It's not to be taken lightly, that one. It is extremely difficult. And the last movement is an absolute swine. It is so... Because it's got to be dancing and delicate. It's got to sound effortless. Yeah. And yet the way that... What you've got to do to make these sounds it requires huge effort and dexterity. Yeah. Now, I'm just casting my doubt. You, you, you never played the Mendelssohn at the Palms, did you? You played so many other things. Yeah, no, I never did the I mean, you played the, the Delius, which that's got to be a hard one. I played one. the Delius concerto. I played the Delius double concerto. I played the Britain double concerto. You played the Dvorak as well. And that the is Dvorak. a famous yep. uh, note twiddler, isn't it? Mm, mm, absolutely. And the Lark Ascending various times, including at the last night of yeah. proms. Elgar a few times, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did all sorts of things. And then Glazunov and then um, some contemporary uh, works Ligeti. as well. I did do the Ligeti and I also um, gave the world premiere of the Stuart McRae violin concerto. Um, I can't, now I can't remember all the other things that I did, but yeah, I did a, oh, Sibelius, of course. Yeah. I, I did quite a wide range of um, repertoire, which was which was brilliant. And, and I didn't mind playing some of the weird stuff because I think what, what, one of the things I love about the proms is that the audience is so open-minded. They will give everything a fair shot and everybody. That's not to say that they are unanimously positive if somebody's not doing their stuff properly. I mm. have heard them be less than warm at the end of a performance when it hasn't really gone very well. Can you name any names? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> you did also do, and I'm, uh, I'm quoting from uh, my reading about this, uh, 2012, what is a grommet prom? Gave the performance of a concerto in, which is described as being an E-lad. <laughs> uh, and it, so it was five minutes and I read it and then it said, a composer unknown, to which I assume nobody wanted to put their name to. <laughs> Actually, upstairs at the top of the stairs, I've yeah. got the poster uh, of that prom and, um, signed by the man himself. And uh, it was one of those proms that was great fun to do. Uh, it was right up your street, really, Rainer, with, with lots of fun and games. Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed it, but I had to record the second violin part, um, which was supposed to be played by Gromit. And um, then I played, it was a double concerto, so I ha, played with myself right. on the stage of the Royal Arthur yeah, well, Hall, if that doesn't can... sound too odd. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it was remarkably difficult to do because whilst one thinks of oneself as, you know, able to follow a beat, um, I, I did actually have to rehearse a lot with the track that was recorded by me. Mm. And, you know, my instinct as a performer is always to do something a little different. And I had to really squelch that one. Did you not have a click track or something? Um, I didn't have a click track, but I, I had been given the recorded track to rehearse with, which is the equivalent, really. So for them thinking, what the hell's a click track? Let me just backtrack over that. So uh, a click track is essentially a um, recording of the beat, which musicians play to. It's the most boring they... thing on earth. It is. It, it <laughs> irons out the kind of spontaneity of it, but it's used a lot in film music where mm. things in the music have to 
have to match what's happening yeah, on the it's screen. Yeah, got to be timed to perfection. Absolutely. So you know, you want you know, da da da, bam bam, you know, whatever it is, the things to happen with with the exciting James Bondy type moment. You would yeah. a second, and so uh, the music doesn't move at regular pace; it changes in pace, and uh, that pace is indicated by the beat. And so the musicians can fit the things together. They're all listening. In a, in a thing you can't hear to a click track. Mm. And that's the sort of thing when you when you have to do what Tasman has just described, that you might expect a click track that you'd be listening to, which would enable you to recapture and play along exactly with what you'd already recorded. But yeah, that's not very prompty, is it? No, 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 it's, um, and it's very awkward. Actually, I have a story about a click track because when uh, Dominic Muldowney wrote A Violin Concerto, which I premiered, it was for two orchestras and only one soloist, but two conductors and the orchestras were playing with different tempi, tempos. Um, and so each conductor had a click track. So each conductor was listening via headphones to the click track and I had to practice to my click track so that I could move seamlessly and effortlessly between one tempo and another tempo. It was a bit of an experiment. I'm not sure it quite worked, um, mm. but it was a very intriguing thing to do and it was good, very good discipline for me to learn how to play with that. Well, with that rigidity, which, as I say, goes slightly against the grain of spontaneous musicianship. Yeah, I have occasionally practised, again, you know, in the times when I played the piano and had to uh, practise with the recordings, and it's just lifeless. What you produce at the end is... It's hard to describe why that might be the case, but it is, and that's all there is to it. I think the thing is that playing music is like breathing, and it's like us talking with our own distinctive style and they'll be the way that I phrase my sentences where I breathe it's very individual and yeah. the way that we play is equally individual and I think that's why it's one of the um, secret ingredients um, that an audience will lock into or not so mm. there'll be people that really like my playing because they really like the way I'm expressing the music there'll be other people who you know really couldn't give a monkeys about my playing because it just somehow or other doesn't speak to them mm. and you can't take offense at something like that it's just it's somebody's individuality you just can't take it personally no well I've just had a conversation about how one can possibly um tell one orchestra apart from another and this touches on that sort of area why you know it's it's this classic thing one comes back to you know what can be possibly different about two performances of classical music it's all written down it's all set in stone well it, it isn't basically uh it's the equivalent of you know to, i was saying to be or not to be that is the question mm. so or to be or, or not, not to be, be. that is the, to be yeah. mm. or not to be that is the question. To be or not to be that is the question. <laughs> there are tons of ways and all of them equally valid. And, and music is like that. Um, and Actually, uh, about that quote, you know that there's um, a YouTube video of um, all sorts of fantastic actors saying that and coming on. And I think even Prince Charles comes on at the end and uh, says it in a different way. And they all are supposed to say it. In, in, in a completely different way. But it, it does, uh, it beautifully um, exhibits exactly that point that everybody has got such an individuality, whether they like it or not, and whether they're trying or not. Yeah, whereas, um, for to use the click track analogy, if it was to be or not to be, that, if you had to do that, all of a sudden, you're, that any spontaneity you, might, spontaneity you might bring out, reacting to the situation, the hall, your own personal emotions, that all goes, and you're yeah. just left repeating something exactly. kind of by rote a little bit. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you also done in 2008 was Ethel Smythe's Concerto for Violin and Horn. We, you know, this year is Ethel Smythe year. I know, and actually one of the proms that I'm really looking forward to is the records, because I have never heard it. And everybody says it's fantastic. And when is it? I can't remember when that one is. Very now. early on. And actually, that's one of that's my it. top tips as well. Sunday, 24th of July. Yeah. And it's lovely, Robin Ticciati, who I adore. Uh, he, he, he speaks the music to me. Anyway, he is a wonderful person. He's just a complete delight. Um, and I can't wait to, to hear this Smythe. No, I think that's really exciting. Mm. Do you know, this is, this, they did it once in 1994. Odenine de la Martinez. Do you, do, do you ever come across her? Do you know? She's an absolutely crazy but marvellous woman. And I, I love her to pieces. Yeah. She's She's really batty, but um, that she's always interesting. Yeah. She she did it in 1994. So this is, I mean, this what's nice about this because it's coming from Blindborn. It's a production they've really worked on. Yeah. Everything will be thought through. It'll be semi-staged. Yeah. It'll have a real. This is going to be Ethel Smythe's moment. The best time. The the way it's been. Absolutely. As she would have dreamed of it doing being done. I yeah. think. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. And also, I see that they are doing. Um, the concerto for violin and horn, Absolutely. which so, won't have been done since I did it, whenever it was that I did I it. I can tell you when you did that. Let me just let me just refer back to my very detailed copious notes <laughs> here. I'm groping now. For, Ethel Smythe, 2008 is when you did it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. who was your hornist? Um, it was Richard Watkins. Oh, okay. Uh, and he was absolutely fantastic yeah. and really, really uh, loved doing it. The problem is that that piece does come, you know, we were talking earlier about what are the problems in the hall and acoustically that, you know, it's it's not very clear. 
And in a piece like that, where the horn is going to reverberate for a long time and is a more powerful instrument anyway than the violin, that does bring certain balance issues that obviously the engineers and the, um, you know in, in the control room are going to sort out for your radio audience. But it's not. I'm not. Um, my my empathy is with lovely Elena Urioste, uh, who's going to be the violinist because she's got her work cut out making herself audible in that piece no matter how clever the horn player is it just is problematic in in certain places it's not an obvious match is it no and there's a very good reason why it's not done very often <laughs> absolutely i mean can i be absolutely honest about that piece because mm. i i've heard a recording and actually you know um probably on youtube or something and it did sound a little bit like a violin concerto with the horn playing a bit too loud in the orchestra yeah. Uh, and, well, I remain to be, I have an open mind. It's a very interesting thing, but, you know, it attracts my interest. Because, OK, this I've got to really listen to, because yeah. I want to see if they can do this. Can yes. I be convinced about this? Well, that's it. And I think that, first of all, I mean, it's great that um, she is finally having her moment and um, long, you know, it's long overdue. But uh, there's such um, a nice mix of all sorts of things that even if, for instance, you don't like the records or the concerto for violin and um, horn. Um, there's a trio that's being done. There's there's all sorts of bits and pieces of hers. So at least we can have get an overview of um, of different styles of of pieces. And that's another thing that the Proms does really well. That you know when they decide they're going to feature somebody, they give everybody a good taste of of what that composer might be about. Yeah, that by the way is the Concerto for Violin and Horn. It is Monday the 25th of July. I mean also on that programme is Rustan and Ludmilla which is a very famous uh, overture uh, and Rahmanov Second Symphony which is you know, a very famous symphony if you like. The yeah. symphonies are like a bit rammer. So in, in that programme there's a bit of uh, there's a bit of everything. And that's the amazing thing actually about the proms, isn't it? Because there are all these there is this match up of stuff which if you were a kind of commercial promoter it's Tasman and Rainer's orchestral series. We're sitting here planning it. I mean, you would kind of want a bit more, each programme to st kind of somehow a little bit, have a bit more coherence somehow. But with the proms, you have to kind of zoom out and go, yes. it's over the whole thing. I think that's exactly right. The proms, if you're going to, you know, really listen to lots of concerts, you'll have got a most incredible musical banquet by the end of it and of course you can dip in and out and pick and choose but I, I do think that yes I mean there are loose connections going on with the proms but it's a festival it's a party it's a you know it's a gathering of people who just want to share music whether they know it or not. The other thing you've done you've done the last night twice so oh, you mentioned once was proms in the park um, which right. is in a way, it's in a way bigger. Yeah. Uh, the, when people think of the last night, the problems, of course, the the hundred million people, whatever it is, it is the flag waving. It's all that jazz. Yeah. Uh, you did either the lark ascending. I that? did the lark ascending and Saint Saëns introduction and Rondo Capriccioso yeah. and lovely Andrew Davis. Yeah. Was uh, my conductor on that occasion, and I mean he just is exactly the perfect person for that role because um, on that particular night, as we know. The conductor's not just the conductor lead, you know, in charge of the orchestra and everything. They've got this speech that they've got to make. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of pressure, and they've got to bring the audience on board. They've got to not cheese everybody off. They've got to conduct them in the, you know, the hornpipe and everything. And 
somehow or other forge a relationship with 6,000 people uh, in a very short space of time. So I think that that, um, that particular event for a conductor must be one of the, the enjoyable ones, but also slightly nerve-wracking because a lot of conductors are judged on that. Mm. And what's it like, what way does it differ from from the ordinary problems, the inverted ordinary uh, problems. Yeah, I think it's just much more um, of a party atmosphere. Everyone's letting their hair down, and um, the promenaders are in total party mood. They're, they're allowed to make noise, and I mean, I love the way that they already do have their certain things, like the moving of the piano. They've got their heave ho and all of that lot. And for the last night, it's their moment, really, the promenaders, and. Um, they collect for charities every year. And, uh, you know, so that's their moment to say how much they've raised for charity. They give the soloists a gift, which is really lovely. I got a bottle of champagne when I did my last night. Um, so there's, there's a lot that focuses on the promenaders being allowed to really audibly um, join in the action, um, you know, and the way they all bend their knees with with the hornpipe and and you know go jump jump da 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 jump jump jump, you yeah. know, and, and lots of things. And of course, everybody sings at yeah. the end, so it's quite a unifying event uh, from that point of view. And now, of course, the whole um, proms in not just one park but many parks has become a larger and larger focus mm. of the evening. And I think that that's good because I think it draws together all all strands. Of the um, of the British Isles, as it were, and I think it it stops it from being too London centric, which I think nowadays is really important. Um, what do you think of that? I, I hear all that. What do you think of the last night of the proms generally? Do you think it should be maybe revamped and some other songs, as they say, be sung instead or something? Um, I. I... I'm not greatly in favour of that, to be honest, because um, I think it was tried once and a lot of people were very, very annoyed about it. Mm. And, um, yeah, I know that you can look at some of this repertoire and say, oh, it's tired or, oh, um, you know, perhaps it's not politically correct anymore or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, I think there's a tradition there that happens only once a year. Um, we're, we're not too flag-waving on too many other occasions, um, so I, I don't think there's any harm in it, to be honest. And um, there are plenty of aspects elsewhere in that particular programme that change every year, namely what the soloists play or sing. So it's, it's only really the last little bit of it that amounts to a very small proportion of that whole concert. Yeah, it's, only the, it's actually only the last... 20 minutes of the second half, exactly. really. I mean, even in the beginning of the second half, it's yeah. something else. Um, OK, let's, if you don't mind, indulge me. Let's just go through the violin concertos. Now, I am not... I'm a very bad viola player, so I, I recognise some of these names, and I'm going to mispronounce them so you can correct me on, on the pronunciation. But I have got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight violin concertos, unless I've miscounted. Uh, Ethel Smythe we talked about. Yeah, and it's actually Smythe. By the way, you're supposed to say. Th oh, is it? Yeah, apparently. Smythe. Yep, I'm as afraid in, so. I don't like in... it either. I think it sounds a bit odd, but apparently. Ethel Smythe. Ethel Smythe. Well, she was, well, she was quite yes. a bossy. Johnny 
bossy. She was. I should say so, rather. Well, there we go. It's like Purcell. Maybe they'll go back to Smythe that sounds like Purcell and Purcell and all the other things. Well, I always think Purcell sounds like a washing powder. Well, it does, doesn't it? And it is. Prom 15 is the Barber Violin Concerto. Yes, yes, yes. I love that concerto. Well, I have mixed feelings about it. Of course, you know the story, which was that it was written, it was commissioned by a very rich man for his protégé. Um, but the protégé wasn't actually apparently very good, so he said to Barber, please don't make it too difficult. So Barber wrote the first two movements. And the last one goes mental. Don't jump the gun. I'm telling the story, Raina. Sorry. So he I wrote the stop. first two... Yeah, no, stop interrupting yeah. that, please, dear. Thank you. So he wrote the first two movements, and, um, of course, there's this nice long oboe solo at the beginning of the second movement, and all the good bits are given to everybody else other than the violin. Anyway... The, and he sounds a little bit spoilt, this protégé. He insisted on um, looking at the first two movements before the last one had been written. So Barber went along and, and showed it to him and, and the, the protégé went, oh, this is far too easy. So Barber thought, right. And he made the last movement stinkingly difficult. And then the protégé looked at it and went, oh, this is far too difficult. Actually, maybe he was American. Oh, this is far too difficult. <laughs> so, and I think he took it. Yes, well, I'm sure he would have been American. Anyway, um, and um, Barber uh, said, well, I've written it now. And the, um, the very rich man said he wanted his commission money back. And Barbara said, I'm terribly sorry, I've spent it. So anyway, there we go. Uh, so that's the story of the Barber violin concerto. And I do think that the um, middle movement is the best bit of it. I like the middle bit of the first movement, but I do think that the, the piece is not... I think it could have been better. Uh, I think had he written it for somebody that could really, really play the violin, he would have done it differently. I think he was a little bit shackled by... Um, you know, by what he thought he was supposed to be doing. It's I mean, very, it's very lyrical. I mean, it's beautifully lyrical, but it's a little bit unbalanced. It and when is I said the last, yeah. the last movement reminds me of the last movement of Chopin's second piano sonata, which is just, it's just, it's this strange thing that Chopin sometimes did. It, it kind of doesn't, ba it doesn't add up. Where does that no, come from? Exactly, it doesn't balance, and that's that's the thing. I'm not saying that it, it's not a, a good violin concerto. I just don't think it's a great. Yeah, okay. Well, that's been played by Johan Dillin. Oh, yes, yes. He's very young, 20 years old, and he won, um, I think he won the Yuri Menuhin International Violin Competition, and he's done very well. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, he's hot stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be worth listening to. You now, you're on the jury of, you have been on the jury of Twice, things. yes, yeah. of the Menuhin Competition, once in Beijing in 2012, and when it was in London in 2016, which, of course, was the centenary of Yehudi's birth. Okay, cool. Well, okay. And then um, Missy Mazzini's, who, who's a new person. That's yes. from 38. I have that one down on my list of I want to really, really make sure I hear. It's Sunday 14th of August. Yeah. Now, I'm going to have to play uh, play that one back on iPlayer because that's my son's birthday. Okay. So I'm afraid we will not be going to the prom. We will be going out for a very nice meal. Yeah. Um, but I will definitely be catching up with that one. And there's also wonderful coffee of Romeo and Juliet in the second half. And I love... Um, well, I... I the whole thing, but you know, it'll, it, we've got an entire second half it's of more than amazing the music. Yeah, more than the dance of the Capulets and the what's mm, it? Yes, it will be. Um, and then Augustine Hadelich is playing Dvorak. Oh, now listen, he is, I think, one of the greatest violinists on stage at the moment. He is an incredible performer. I am not going to be missing this. Yeah. Uh, I love his playing. Um, he is a thoughtful musician, but his technique is 
it's just bulletproof. It's incredible. And you kind of need that. Listen, from the agile, casual, I don't play the violin standpoint, that Dvorak, it's a load of notes, isn't it? It's a lot of notes, and it's um, a curious shape. It's a very similar shape, funnily enough, to the Max Brook number one. Shortish first movement, long lyrical slow movement, and then fun and games in the last movement. Ah. So it all really happens in the slow movement and the last movement. The last movement is very awkwardly written. I wonder whether this is one reason why it's not done so often. Like the Glazunov, it's great when it's done well, and it's terrible when it is not done marvellously. Yeah, do you know what? I've, I've been through various phases of, of not being, not being a violinist, of, of, of rooting around in the violin concerto repertoire, and that was one I kind of didn't know until relatively recently. Do you want to know fun fact? Tell me. Do you see that clock there? It's made out of a score of Dvorak violin concerto. Uh, not quite, yeah. but um, it's an, a long playing record, yeah. but in the middle bit of it, it is a CD, as you can see, and that is my very first recording that I made, which is of the Bruch number one and the Dvorak concerto. It was the first thing I recorded. How extraordinary. There we go. So you're looking at it right you, now. You played, you played it also with the Scottish... Uh, BBC Scottish Orchestra and Jersey Maximuk in, yes. in 1990. Well, so you've got your fingers around that. Well, anyway, that, that, so that's an exciting thing that we're looking forward to. Great. Then uh, I've got numbers. Brahms, Brahms Concerto with Daniel Lozakovich. Yep. Now, I don't know him. I do know the Brahms. Um, yeah. But, uh, yep, I'm going to be really interested uh, in... In him, it's not a name that I'm familiar with, but yeah. that's the nice thing about the proms, isn't it? That yeah. uh, you know, very often the proms will showcase young up and coming, so like Johan Dallan, um, young up and coming talent and give them a real serious platform. It's really how I started my career in 1990. It's not yeah. that I hadn't done any concerts till yeah. then, but it was just that the exposure of playing at the proms plus releasing that recording that yeah. you can look at on the wall. Um, that that was really what did it. That gave me, you know, a serious foot up several rungs of the ladder. Well, OK, that's great. Um, can I tell you honestly, of the great violin concertos, my least favourite is the Brahms. Can't tell you why. Oh, Just... you have to go and listen to my recording. Oh, OK, there we go. <laughs> or, or, or listen to um, David Oistrach. OK. Because he, I mean, he's the violinist's violinist. Yeah. His sound would just melt any heart. Yeah. And he was just such a great musician. Ah. So forget listening to me. Don't worry about me. Go and listen to, <laughs> listen to, to listen David to Oystra. No, 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 listen to David Oystra. Shall I tell you a story about that? I once did an interview with Yehudi for yeah. a Radio 3 series. Right. And we went to that place that he was in Chester Square. Square. It was, it was a series called uh, Rainer Hirsch's 20th Century Retrospective, rather self-effacing. It was for Radio 3, <laughs> six programmes. And um, one of the programmes was about the greatest, looking back on the whole century, the greatest musicians, which is absurd, I know, but we sold the series, that's what the programme was called, and I had to make it about that. And we spoke to Yehudi, and uh, I actually, I put him on the list of people that I'd like to speak to, and to my amazement, he said yes. And we were shown up to his Paganini room, which had all this Paganini, Paganini memorabilia in it, and these photos, incredible photos, yeah, yeah. of Yehudi with, um, you know, Rostropovich, Yehudi with Nehru, Yehudi with God, with God looking a bit <laughs> sheepish, and pleased to meet Yehudi. Uh, and, Anyway, we were looking around this stuff thinking we could nick some of this if, you, if nobody had taken care of, you know, who we were. We turned around and he was like Nosferatu. He suddenly appeared. Like, Boosh! There, there he oh, was. Wow. And 
I asked him who was the greatest violinist, and he said Oistra. Mm. Um, you know, and he said it's very hard to say. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I have to push all this point because that's what our show is called. Yeah. I also wanted to tell that story, which he, he probably he, he was famous story. He used to say about rehearsing with Toscanini in New York. Uh, he's rehearsing. This is you know after he he's a child prodigy and everything in the early thirties, and he's doing the bra. Uh, he's doing the Beethoven concerto with right. Oistra, yeah. and they're in some hotel room. And Toscanini is playing the piano and Yehudi's playing the violin. And uh, the telephone goes and it's one of those big boxes on the wall. Oh, brilliant. And uh, Toscanini ignored it and they carried on playing it, went again, ignored it. The third time he went, Toscanini went over to this box, wrenched it off the wall, threw it down, <sighs> then went back to the piano and carried on playing like nothing had happened. And this was Toscanini, uh, this was Yehudi's story about oh, the brilliant. concentration. And I wanted Yehudi to tell that story, and, and I wanted to say, I wrote a little script for him saying, I wanted to ask him, who was it on the phone? And I wanted him yes, to say, I want to it know. was the technician saying they got the line working again. <laughs> that was my job. But by this time, he was, slight, he was oh. right at the end of his life, and he wasn't in the mood to do my little bit of comedy. Oh. comedy. But anyway, um, yeah, he said Oyster Rock too. So there we go, that's something. He I'd... was a great raconteur, you know. Oh, there we I go. I don't know whether we might have to cut this bit out, but he did. Um, tell me the most marvellous story when we were together in, in Poland, in Warsaw, and we were having dinner, and he told me this hilarious story about going to visit Bartok at his apartment, and I don't know, Bartok went out, I think because he, Bartok wrote his solo violin sonata for Yehudi, so anyway, I don't know whether Bartok went to get some more pencil and paper or something like that. Anyway, of course, there's the usual um, photos in frames and stuff like that, and Yehudi was just casually looking through them and right up at the back there's this picture of Bartok and his wife rock climbing entirely naked. <laughs> so there we go. So he also told a hilarious story about Walton, about going to visit um, um, Lord, um, uh, Lady Walton, Susanna and, and William Walton, and um, that uh, Walton was going to write him a violin sonata. And uh, Yehudi and Diana um, were, were staying with the Waltons. His and, wife. Uh, his yeah, wife, yeah. Uh, Diana, his very scary wife at times. But anyway, she, she was actually quite a darling underneath it all. Anyway, so um, so the four of them decided they were going to walk into the centre of Ischia and go and grab some more manuscript paper and, at the music shop, etc. This has and, been the island where William Morton lived, just off the Naples coast. Exactly. Basically. Stunning, stunning area. And I've been to the house, which has got beautiful gardens mm. and everything. And they, still, they still exhibit the gardens, don't they? Yes, 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 they do. And Susanna was an um, absolutely superb character. She's absolutely brilliant. Oh, darling, darling, you're short like that. So anyway, um, so they were walking down the hill and, of course... Famously, Walton was rather cross that Benjamin Britten was, you know, really courted and feted by everybody. So he was a bit jealous of Benjamin Britten. And then and Yehudi realised his increasing horror as they got closer to the music shop. There was this great, huge, in the window, this, this great um, display of things of Benjamin Britten, including music and, you know, and, and photographs and, and this, that and the other, which, um, which sounds sort of interesting, bearing in mind the fact it was um, where... Walton lived. But anyway, apparently that was what happened. And and it was all against the backdrop of a sort of velveteen curtain. Anyway, um, Walton apparently pretended to take no notice whatsoever and said that he was going to go in, inside to buy the paper. And Yehudi was looking at this um, display while they were waiting outside and then he saw this 
hand slowly emerging through the curtain and taking the picture of, of uh, Benjamin Britten and very gently placing it face down. And then <laughs> the hand retreated and then Walton came out apparently as if nothing had happened whatsoever. <laughs> but the way that Yehudi told that story was incredibly funny and I will never forget it. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it, yeah, my comedy version is it replaced with a picture of William Walton. <laughs> So, uh, obviously, we've got another one, exciting one, Winter Marsalis uh, with Nicola Benedetti. Yeah, That's going to be jazzy, that's going to be all those kind of things yeah. you'd expect from him, and it's quite a long one, it's 45 minutes. Yes. So, needless to say, you know, something that lasts that long and is going to be what we expected for It's going to be a showpiece for Yes, her. it's bound to be a, a showpiece. I can't wait to hear it, and when you're working with a composer, you want to do your best with the composer's material, you want to hopefully inspire them, but they want to write a piece specifically f with you in mind. So I've had various things written for me, and um, you know I've enjoyed that process of collaboration hugely. And there's a great respect that goes alongside it, and it, it's it, it's a bit like giving birth, you know. And you realise um, that there's this moment the night before that you'd better not die because you're the only person that can play the piece at that moment in time. Right. So um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm, you know, not that no. I'm saying that, that Nicola would be worrying about that, but there is this moment where you are still the only person on earth who is playing that piece of music, and you feel such a huge responsibility towards the composer, um, you know, to, to really make um, make something of this piece that they've poured their heart and soul into to really make it work for the audience, and um, it's a very exciting process. So yeah, I, that one's huge on my list. Yeah, and the final one is uh, I've got I've got Prom Seventy One, whatever that is, uh, and that is uh, Camille Saint-Saëns' introduction rondo, which you said you already played uh, at the last night. Did you say that? I did. Yes. And Lisa Batiashvili. Yes, yes. She is another wonderful player. Yeah. A very experienced player. Listen, you've done the proms uh, so many times. I mean, that's an amazing achievement. And, you know, people love you and loved you doing it. You once said that someone wouldn't be the same without, um, if I'm not playing the proms, you know, when mm. you were doing it. And now you've stopped. And, you know, for reasons, um, you know, you, you explained to me, you know, you've been playing the violin since you can ever remember. Mm. And now there are new directions you want to go. But, you know, when you see these kind of pieces come out, feel like, you know, I, I did that. I did that. Yeah. Is it? And with these people, I met him. I met her. I yeah, did that. Yeah. She wrote a piece for me. Mm. Do you ever feel kind of this pang? Oh, I wish I was still doing that again. Not really, Raina, because I'm still so involved in music in different ways. And um, I love sitting back and, and hearing good people play brilliantly. And I don't have to do a thing. It's marvellous. And if I ever miss anything, I have got all this music in my head. I can play any piece I ever want to whenever I want. So it's all still there. Um, if I really miss myself, I can always put on a recording. I made 45 of them. So mm. if I ever feel that I need to, you know, re recapture a little bit of fun and, and stuff, I, I can do that if I want to. But um, one nice thing, actually, my mother said to me this morning, now, when is your prom or when are your proms? Because I'm actually going to be um, the interval feature. I'm going to chat in the box twice. And it gave me quite a turn when she said it because I thought, no, no, I don't do that anymore. Uh, so that was a, a, another fight, very funny moment. But I'll be chatting um, on, um, on the 18th of July, live in the interval and on the 
4th of September for Fab. those uh, those so um, I, it's nice to still be involved in in the proms live yeah so yeah, that's on that's a BBC TV for them and no it'll be on Radio 3 oh I'm, okay I'm well the there radio. we go even better um, so you you remain Queen of the Proms <laughs> and you're you. definitely Queen of Hearts and thank you so much I mean how interesting was all that um, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure talking to you oh thanks Rainer it's always great fun to talk to you too well, uh, that was Tasmin. What an exciting thing to meet her. She's an absolute legend and an extremely nice person, as you'll guess from that chat. The things I remember, especially walking up the gangplank and, you know, having the audience gradually appear from the gallery to the arena, which is the very bottom of the uh, viewing audience, and that, you know, you don't have time to kind of ready yourself and do it. Uh, when the moment strikes, which you do when you perform elsewhere. You're pushed on and that's that. And of course, um, I can't help but laugh at the idea of performing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto and uh, people uh, in the orchestra who can also play the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto hovering, <laughs> hovering around your dressing room, <laughs> psyching you out by playing it in the background. Now, I mentioned the occasional musical treat. This edition of Proms in the Pub goes out just days before the first night of the Proms 2022 on the 15th of July, which is entirely devoted to the Verdi Requiem, all 84 minutes of it, according to the Proms programme. Now, I think the Verdi Requiem is sort of known and unknown at the same time. Strike me down, but I think it's got one really famous tune, which is the Dies Irae, and, well, I can tell you a story about how I think that's known and unknown another time. Um, but in order to sort of balance that out, I've asked a very good friend of mine, Harry the Piano, an amazing pianist, harrythepiano.com, if you want to look him up, to remind us of some of Verdi's better-known tunes. Here he is with a Verdi medley. See how many you can pick out. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Take it away, Harry.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.